0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Nice to hear those welcomes. Why don't we continue in our worship? We're going to be reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So we turn a chapter, and believe it or not, we are getting close to the end of this book. What a great series it's been uh, in this new year. And Oh, you can kill my audio from that speaker. Thank you. That will ruin my day. Uh, (laughs) I don't like hearing myself. Um, So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. And we come to God's Word with with open hearts and ears to hear and to listen to Him, to see what He has. Let's read in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. Man, oh man. (laughs) Don't we have some things to talk about today? (laughs) Sexual immorality, drunkenness, locker room joking. I mean, sex, drugs, rock and roll, it's all here. Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God. That's how it starts off. That is how this whole thing starts off. We are made to be imitators of God. We are created to imitate something. We all have this in us. We are formed by something, we all imitate something, we all follow some pattern that has been given to us. That's what this passage is telling us. And it's the most basic teaching in all of Christianity. The most basic teaching of Christianity is this, that you either are walking in the light of God or you're walking in the darkness of the world. And this living is the result of imitating God. Living in the light is the result of imitating God, which leads to, to walking in the light Or it leads to walking in darkness and following the world. We are by nature's imitators. We follow the things or the circumstances or the context in which we are immersed. This week I did something, as an example, this week I did something that I feel horribly bad about. And to put out a disclaimer, it was an accident. Uh, But nonetheless, I still feel bad about it. While cooking dinner, a piece of food that I was cooking and chopping up fell onto the ground. And it was not something that our dog should be eating. And our dog, like any time, you know, is always looking at us when we're cooking and rushes over to this piece of food that fell onto the ground to eat it. And her name's Maggie. This will be meaningful in a moment. Uh, And I had this knife in one hand and food in the other hand, and I had nothing in which to shoo her away and, and so the only thing that I had left to kind of shoo her away was my, my foot, right? Um, my dog rushed over, and normally all that it will take is this impending shadow of my foot to signal to her that she should get out of the way, but not this time. Normally she does. And so with the full force of my soccer boot behind my foot, I swing for her, and she goes, full speed ahead, her face right into my foot. She's three and a half pounds, and she goes two feet into the air. Right? It's an accident, I feel bad about it. Most of you are laughing. Some of you are texting PETA right now. <laughs> my, two-year-old, my two-year-old, who's watching all of this, notices all of it. Uh, Especially the dog suddenly getting the ability to fly, sees all of this and walks over with her shoulders back and full confidence, says, No, Maggie, and fully swings the going kicker. She misses, thankfully. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing because that might be the last laugh in this sermon. Um, we're imitators. We all are imitators of something. You and I were created with the DNA with the wiring, with the supernatural coding, whatever you want to call it, to be imitators. We are created for this very purpose, to be imitators. And in a funny example of that, this my daughter trying to figure out how do, I, how do I live my life and how do I treat the dog and what should I do? And just, in, in, in everything that I did, she comes over and does the same thing. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image According to our likeness, let us make them to be like us, to, to imitate us, to be made to be like us. And then he says, be fruitful after making Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, fill it, have dominion over it. And God is creating us with the not only ability, but the calling to imitate him, imitating him in our creativity. As we create from his creation, uh, he, we are, we are, we are called and given the command to subdue the earth, to imitate God's authority over the earth and the things in our care, to cultivate the ground, to be productive. All of these things, God is saying, let us make them with the the makeup, the supernatural coating, to be like us. But then let's also give them the work that demonstrates what we are like. We being the the complex Godhead, the complexity within the Godhead, the three-person Godhead, God, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And so we were made to be imitators of God in our being and in our doing. And at the first opportunity, as far as we know, the first opportunity Adam and Eve had they said, we don't want to be like you. We want to do it our own way. We don't want to imitate you. We don't want to follow in your ways. We do not want to be imitators of you. The very thing that they were created for, to be and to do, they rebelled against. And, we, and they said, we have a different way. We have a better way. We want to do it our own way, our own thing. And they did. And the effects of this rebellion greets each and every single one of us as we are born into the world. Each of us still being born in the image of God and yet born with desires opposed to God because of that guilt that has been passed down, the curse that has been passed down. When our first parents said, we don't want to imitate you, God, we have been doing it ever since. And so we have this horrible dilemma, this disposition of still being made in the image of God, wired with this supernatural coding to imitate God, but our inability to do it. And we say, I don't want to be like you. I want to do what I want to do. We've been so formed by the darkness. As Paul has told us previously in this letter to his church, he says, we have walked with the, in the darkness. We have, we're sons of disobedience. We've Rather than walking in the light, we walk in the darkness and we're formed by it to such an extent that not only our behaviors, our appetites and values have been affected, but it has affected our ability to even stand in awe of God's love for us and be changed by it. We don't even notice it. We don't even, we become apathetic to it. We don't think it's even that great. We explore our options. We see what God has done for us and we say, that's great, let me explore my options and I'll... I'll decide what is good for my life, whether I'm going to imitate you or imitate something else. Sin has made us so blind that it actually causes us to call bad things good things and good things bad things. It causes us to chase after useless things when what we have presented to us are life-giving things. As an example, I, I don't get to go to too many live sporting events, But something interesting happens every time that I do. I'm finally there in the ballpark. I'm finally there in the arena. I'm finding myself watching athletes that I have been that I've admired from a distance, sometimes for decades. Some of these are my heroes that I've watched and followed, and I'm finally there in the same room, in the same arena, in the same field as them. And what am I doing the entire time? I'm looking at the jumbotron. And I'm watching the plays go on over here when everything is going on right there. Because I have been formed by this. I'm used to watching it on TV. I'm used to watching the replays. I've been formed by my environment. That's what habits can do. That's what habits do. That's what formation can do. We trade ultimate things for much lesser things, and we say, that's what I desire. There's a thousand examples like that. It's my kids playing with a paper towel roll after we spent a thousand dollars on Christmas, you know, and that's what made them happy. It's kids chasing a butterfly at the beach when the vastness of the ocean is before them. The greatest news in the whole world is in this passage, and it's possible to miss it. Somehow, It's possible to admit it entirely in the midst of these uncomfortable and taboo things. And maybe that's even what you're thinking as we read this passage. You're thinking, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about sex and dirty joking, and we're going to talk about drunkenness. And now you felt a little uncomfortable. It's so easy. We We are nurtured in such a way and transformed by our environments to miss the best news in this passage looking at this look at just this first verse therefore be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us it is so easy okay therefore be imitators of god beloved children walk in love christ gave himself for us that's awesome but sexual immorality and then we go and then we get to like what's really important there but we that's not that's how we read but that's not the right way To do it. Jesus Christ loved you by offering Himself as a sacrifice to God on your behalf. Let me say it again. Jesus loved you so much by offering Himself as a sacrifice to God on your behalf. That should stun you. That should shake you with confusion, with joy, with with tears. It should be so confusing to you. You should read that and be caught dead in your tracks and not read any further until you grasp the vastness of how good this is. I told you that this passage presents such a, such a simple structure. It's the most basic Christianity for what it means to be a Christian. But we skip over the simple and we, we get too quickly to the complicated. Well, what does it mean to be impure? What does the Bible really mean about sexual immorality? What makes a word empty or not empty? Uh, what are the historical or ancient Eastern notions of light and dark? Can we talk about that? Talk about that. Excuse me. Jesus loved you. By giving himself as a sacrifice for God on your behalf. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about grasping that and understanding that. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Not hypothetically, let's really talk about that. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The only way to have a relationship with God and for our sins to be forgiven is for Jesus to take our place under God's punishment. The only way to find favor with God, to have our sins forgiven is for Jesus to become a sacrifice for us, to die in our place where we deserve the punishment of God. Jesus takes our punishment. The only way is for Jesus to exchange himself for us. Jesus is our sacrifice. In the Old Testament, there was something called a sacrificial lamb. We sang about it this morning. And when this lamb was slain and the people laid their hands on this lamb that was slain, and, uh, in prayer, the lamb was slain and, and their sins were atoned for, their sins were, were, were forgiven because, not because of a special ritual, but because they knew that what this meant from God's command was that as that the sins, that their sins fell on this lamb, and as the lamb was murdered and slain, their sins were forgiven. The punishment fell on the lamb and not them. The Old Testament people knew this so well. They knew that this lamb was being slaughtered instead of them. Not just as something to do to please God, it was done instead of them. The sacrifice was God's way of paying the price for relationship with those whom he loves. The sacrificial lamb was a way for God to have relationship with those who he loved. This is very basic. This is very basic. You will not understand the love of God unless you realize that Jesus is a sacrifice for you. That you deserve that. The slaughter, the anger, the wrath of God, the punishment for walking in darkness, but Jesus took it instead. And instead, what you get and what is exchanged is the righteousness of God, the blessings of heaven, the riches of all that he has. You are, as in Christ, you have everything that is promised to Jesus as his perfect son is given to you. We cannot understand that unless we understand that he died in our place, that we are deserving sin and he he needs to die for us. It's so basic. And this love is meant to move us. It is meant to move us to walk in love, to walk as imitators of God unless you believe that you're truly hopeless and lost without Jesus dying for you in your place the cross will make no sense to you and it won't move you to change your life at all this love is meant to move us to be walk to walk as imitators of God belief and practices are married together at the altar. They are the bride and the groom that are united together forever without separation. What you truly believe will overflow into a life that you live. And maybe even more profound is thinking it the other way. How you live and what you do and how you think is a result of what you really believe. If you truly believe and rest in the fact that Jesus died for you and all of God's blessings and favor belong to you by the merits of Jesus dying on the cross for you, you will live a life of increasing faithfulness, increasing joy, increasing contentment and rest, knowing that all that you need and all that you have is in Christ and it's everything. You will not fight for your reputation, you will not fight for your point of view, you will not fight for your rights or your position in the world or, in your, or, or otherwise. You will rest in what God has done for you and you will find joy in that. If, on the other hand, you spend your life attempting to do good things in hope that God will notice you, that he will notice you, and in hope that he will love you because of those things, that he will look at your good deeds and say, I I see that you're trying, I see that you're doing good things, you've really changed your life really well, in hope that he will accept you and forgive you, then the cross has been emptied of all power, and you don't really believe that what happened on the cross at all is important. (laughs) If you are still working for your salvation and working for God's love, then the cross isn't necessary. Don't call yourself a Christian. It's something else. To be a Christian. Jesus died in my place. He's my sacrifice. That should have been me, but it is him. Jesus gave himself for you. Jesus gave himself for you. Belief and practices go together. Let's get into some of these belief and practices as Paul does. Let's get into some of the meat of the passage. Why is it? We're going to talk about sex. Why is it? Why is it that immediately after talking about the self-giving, sacrificial love of God, Paul says, sexual immorality should have nowhere, should be nowhere near the people of God. God gave himself for you, sacrificed himself for you. Keep sexual immorality far away from you. Why do these two things go hand in hand? And what does sexual immorality have to do with impurity and covetousness, as he says? To covet is this, and listen closely, to covet is to want more, to strive after to have more, to rob, to take a greater portion for yourself. Sexual immorality in the English is so vague. What does that even mean? But in the Greek, it's not vague at all. The Greek word is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. But the Greek, Greeks did not understand pornography in the way that we understand pornography today. What it meant in the Bible, it meant to have sex with anyone with whom you weren't married to. That's what it meant. That's what it still Means The Bible's teaching on sexual morality is one of the most clear ethics in all of the Bible. What Paul is showing us is that our sexuality is created to reflect the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus. It is not primarily for individual consumption. It is not about us to feel good. It is not even for uh, us to earn the favor of the other person. It is for the self-giving Love to be expressed. What is a way of giving ourselves away? And hear this. Sex is designed by God as a way of giving ourselves away to a person whom we have also given away ourselves to completely. Sex is designed by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to the person with whom you are completely, unconditionally, unconditionally, and permanently true to. This is what God says that we are to him. This is why he gave himself for us. He gave himself because we were completely and unconditionally and permanently tied to him in love because of his self-giving sacrifice. That's what sex should be. Sex is God's invented way of doing radical self-donation. And we should never give away ourselves physically to a person we have not given ourselves away to completely and utterly in every area of our lives. It calls us into a relationship with a person that is radically self-giving as Christ is radically self-giving. What did it cost? How much did he give? The Bible is clear. He gave everything. He gave as much as you can give. The extent to which he gave, we do not even fully understand. We have never even come close to giving anybody as much as he gave to us. Here's how sin perverts that. Here's how it perverts God's design for sex. It invites us to have physical oneness with a person. The temptation of sex is to have physical oneness with a person without whole life oneness with that person. This is so important that Paul says we cannot live sexually immoral lives and be confident that we truly trust in the gospel. We cannot live sexually immoral lives and truly have confidence that we have rested in and embrace the love of God that has been given to us in Jesus. We cannot delight in and set our affections on what God says is bad and be sure that we are in Christ. I know it's hard to hear. It's hard to say. He says Going on, he even says this. He says, in relationship to this, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul's saying, you're going to hear a lot of things regarding this. Someday, maybe even today. People are going to talk about sex in a way, and you're going to say, "That's that's a really good point. I haven't thought about it that way. Don't be deceived. You're going to hear things like, the heart wants what the heart wants. I was born this way. You love who you love. Paul says, don't be confused. Listen to what God says. (coughs) This is why the anger of God, the wrath of God, is coming on the world because people do that. Because people say, I don't want to imitate you. I don't want to do what you say. I want to do what I say. I want to do what I feel. The Bible says, this is why the wrath of God is coming. Don't do it. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light of light. Jesus gave himself for you. Sin makes you feel good when you're actually in the dark. There's something about sin that makes you feel that when you're in darkness, it's comforting, and when the light, when the light turns on, it's uncomfortable. And yet it's the light that we're called to that is good for us and where truth is found. And the darkness is where evil is found. But we have it switched. We're created with this image of God in us to to be imitators of God. But because of sin, we have this natural disposition to not feel comfortable with God. We actually have this disposition to feel comfortable with sin and uncomfortable with the truth. At night, my children go to bed and desire a nightlight on because they've been in the light all day, and they're afraid of the dark. In the morning, my kids desire to be in the darkness because they've spent all night in the darkness, and the light is offensive to them. How weird is that? What's the point? We become accustomed to whichever environment we spend time in. It's that simple. We're in the daytime all the time, the night makes us afraid. We're in the night all the time. The light is painful. (coughs) Walk as children of the light. Walk in this. Walk with Jesus. Walk in his truth. Become accustomed to spending your time so much in the wisdom and love and presence and communion with Jesus that the darkness (coughs) is evil and it's seen as evil and it's scary, and you don't want to have any part of it. Going from darkness to light is painful. We become irritated. We become uncomfortable. Going from light to dramatic darkness is scary. We become worried and afraid. Haven't you noticed this? When, the, when you've been in the light and the, and the lights go down, let's just say the lights go down dramatically and it's pitch black, what do you do? you become incredibly still, you become slightly afraid, and you talk in a whisper. How funny is that? (laughs) Why do we whisper when the lights go out? When you're in the darkness all the time and the lights come on, what do you do? When there's dramatic change from darkness to light, it's the opposite, you get really fast, you shout really loud, ah, turn it off. That's what my kids do anyway. It almost seems like the darkness is more friendly than the light. It is true that the light stings. But Paul reminds us the truth is in the light. The good things are in the light. The true and honest and noble and pure are in the light. God is in the light. Walk as children of the light, for that is where God is. It feels comfortable. You will feel comfortable. People will say, well, if God loves me and he desired me to do something else, why would he make this so fun? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Listen to God. Of course you love darkness. You've been formed by it. You have walked in it for too long. It's painful to come into the light from the darkness, but then Christ will shine on you and you will know the warmth of his love. So what are we to do? What are we to do when we have realized the habits of darkness that have been formed in our life? What do we realize when we say, that's happened to me. I have become comfortable in darkness. God, help me. What should we do? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Amazing. This is the quote from the book of Malachi. Malachi is talking, he quotes the Old Testament here from the book of Malachi, Isaiah references, talking about the great day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord, the end of days when Christ returns and calls us all out of our graves. And Malachi says, this is what will happen. Let me give you a picture of what will happen. Because you're thinking like, okay, are we, are we talking like walking dead? Are we talking zombies? When Christ comes and we come out of the grave, what is it going to be like? Malachi says when that day happens, we will burst from our graves like baby cows running out of the stall. <laughs> like so excited, trying to do this movement that we've never done before, but just rushing out as fast as we can and it is awkward and it is adorable, but you can tell it's filled with joy. Who has ever seen a baby cow starting to walk and saying, well, that's unfortunate. No, you say, it's so awesome. This is so amazing. I shake my kids in the morning. It's time to get up. We've made breakfast for you. A great day awakes. Just a few minutes more. And then they roll over. I have never seen my children burst from their rooms like baby cows from their stalls. Except, hmm, interesting, interesting, Christmas, Disneyland Day. (laughs) Why? Because they know what awaits them. Good grief, people. Do you see this? Get up. Wake up. Walk in the light. Oh, come on, it's just more rules. It's just, more, it's just really hard. These, you know, the pleasures of the flesh are really tempting. Do you know what awaits you if you do? Do you know what awaits you? Get up. Get out of your dead clothes and put on living clothes. What an amazing, beautiful picture when we know the good that awaits us, amazing things that await us, that are waiting for us, when we get out of darkness and come to the light, you will not care how hard the light stings. You will close your eyes and you will burst forth through your your room and you will, as my kids on Christmas morning, they will squint their eyes and follow if they cannot see They will follow the smell of cinnamon and cocoa. They will follow the sound of Mickey's voice if they cannot see. The light stings, it does. But you'll find a way. You'll find a way because you know what awaits you and it is so good. Paul has been telling us all this. Do you know what awaits you? Do you know what is yours? And you're giving it away for something cheap? For a cheap physical feeling? for a cheap appetite, for a cheap word, for a cheap buzz. Wake up. Step into the light because a great day awaits you. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is alive. And we are closer to eternity today than we were yesterday. Every day you wake up, you're closer. Every single day you wake up you're closer to eternity. So you should wake up, jumping out of the stalls, knobby knees, (laughs) frail bodies, whatever it is. You wake up, you know what awaits you, and you feel the warmth of Christ's love on your body and on your heart. Wake up. You see, this isn't about sex. (laughs) It's not about drunkenness, it's not about saying the right words and not saying the wrong words. It's about our worship with the Lord it's about our knowing him it's about our delighting in him it is it is about being made in the image of God made to imitate God and finding the truth that is in Jesus Christ having the joy of knowing what awaits us for those who rise take off our dead clothes repent of sins turn from our sin to life in Christ and he will shine on you and you will feel his warmth You'll be changed in your inner being. Christ will dwell in your hearts. It's hard. The light is painful. So what do we do when we get out of bed? <laughs> now that you're out of bed, what do we do? <coughs> Paul tells us. He says, now I got you out of bed. Are you awake? Are you, have you risen, O oh sleeper? Okay, now let me tell you what to do in verse 15, he says. Now that you're awake, now that you have been captivated by the love of Christ, you have recognized the darkness in your life, in your heart, in your sin, and you are going to repent of those sins and turn to Jesus. What do you do? He says, let me just give you three brief things. Look carefully how you walk. Right? So the baby cow jumps out of the stall. You can't just do whatever you want now. You've got to look carefully how you walk. There's a lot of dangerous things out there. There's a lot of pits to fall into. There's a lot of trees to bump into. There's a lot of poachers out there wanting to shoot you. Look carefully how you walk. Paul would have us understand that we are a broken people that live in a broken world. It's not safe. And I am not talking primarily about material safety. I don't need to convince you that our world is broken in an outward sense, you know this. This is plainly and painfully obvious. We live in a broken world in an outward sense. But do you really believe, do you really believe that your existence in this world is also not just under physical attack, but it's under spiritual attack? Do you really believe that you are under constant spiritual temptation? That the world is broken, not just in a sense of what harm can come to you physically, but what harm can come to you in a spiritual sense. It's not safe. When I see on the news that a restaurant fails a health inspection, I will announce out loud and make my declaration known, we are not going there anymore. (laughs) We are not going to that restaurant anymore, at least for a month. (laughs) Until I forget. That place is not safe for me anymore. I'm not going there anymore. We will eat organic when we can. We will check ingredients lists like it's our religion. We will check expiration dates. We will be so careful with what we put in our bodies. We are more concerned with the pollution in the air than the pollution in our hearts. And we will walk around as if there is no danger seeking to destroy our spiritual life. We are so careful with our children, with our health, with our finances, everything. Be careful. There's a lot of pitfalls out there. And when it comes to our spiritual heart, what's going on, we say, oh, it's good. Jesus, Jesus lives in me. I'm okay. It's not true. It's evil. It's dangerous. We should be careful. Redeem the time. He says we ought to make the best use of the time, literally, to redeem the time, to redeem it, to buy it back. To say this time is being used for evil, but I'm going to buy it back and I'm going to use it for God's purposes. I'm going to redeem it. To have this mindset as you go about your day, it's not naive to the fact that Satan desires your heart and your mind. It is to say this morning belongs to the Lord. I want to guard my heart this morning when I get up because the, because the days are evil. And the days are evil seeking to t- tempt me and as, as there are physical physical evils out there seeking to destroy me Satan is out there there's temptation and wickedness it's seeking to ruin my day and so it's saying this morning belongs to the Lord it is going about your day saying this lunch appointment belongs to the Lord it is going about your time and during this commute it's saying during this commute I am not merely a hurried person going from point A to point B but I'm a beloved child of God who Jesus loves and gave himself up for, and I'm thankful for this moment. This moment I'm going to redeem, because this moment belongs to the Lord, no matter what's going on, because I belong to God. He gave himself up for me. I'm not going to let this moment tempt me to sin. And Paul says, don't get drunk. ever Let me tell you this it is impossible to walk in the light of God's love when you are drunk no one has ever honored God and walked in his love when they were drunk ever you can't either You may think I'm a happy drunk <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a happy drunk I'm a happy hour drunk I am a happy drunk. When I am drunk, I am the most social and friendly person. I am the best version of myself when I am drunk. Anybody? That's great. That's like like 15 to 20 for me, okay, years old. That's like, that that was my saying. But I'm a happy drunk. This is when I feel most loved. This is when I feel most important. This is when people like me. Um, What am I going to say? Uh, (laughs) For the Bible, you see, it's not about behavior. You say, well, see, my behavior is good when I'm drunk. This isn't talking about behavior. Do you see that it's not an issue of behavior? He doesn't say, don't get drunk, Christians. Instead of getting drunk, Christians, get together with friends and play a sensible game of Settlers of Catan. This is not Christianity. He says, well, what do Christians do then if they don't get drunk? They they play board games. (laughs) This is not what he's saying. Yeah, go play board games. That's, That's fun. Go play, but that's not, he's not saying choose, don't choose that behavior and choose this behavior. He says, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not talking about church either. He's not talking talking about being a a part of a worship service. He's not talking about either. He's not talking about just wine. Don't get drunk with wine. That's good. I'm a Scotch guy. (laughs) He's not talking about behavior. He's not talking about a prescription for honoring God. He is talking about worship. He is meaning to connect The previous verse with this verse, to live out the picture that God paints for us as beloved children of God who walk in the light, he gives us a special warning. To be awake in a life that is given to our personal sanctification, we must be constantly on watch. Can't do that when you're drunk. Can't do that when you're high. We live in days that are evil, and God has placed us here as stewards, managers managers of our bodies of our cre- of his creation and of our own lives a manager and a faithful steward has an attitude of alertness paying attention inward sobriety so it's not just wine it's anything that weakens our ability to let the to let the word of christ dwell in us richly and overflow in praise and worship to God. Anything. If a buzz gets you there, then that's what he's talking about. If it's, a, if it's a legal drug, then that's what he's talking about. If it's an illegal drug, that's what he's talking about. Don't let anything get in the way of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be alert. Be alert. Because we live in days that are evil. Drunk with alcohol. High On drugs it's not even a matter purely of legal or what's not legal but an attitude of worship I know I just ruined some of your weekends I hope I redeemed it I hope you buy it back I hope you see what awaits you the Bible doesn't prohibit the use of alcohol in fact you could even say that scripture permits what should be both a moderate and joyful consumption of alcohol. Amen. Okay. <laughs> A joyful and moderate consumption. Don't get drunk. Don't get drunk ever. I told you. God tells you. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the second thing. Understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the second time he says this. Look, at, look up in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then here he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice he does not say, understand if you want to live your life, understand what the will of your political party is. Understand what the will of your neighbor is. Understand what is the will of your preferred broadcast, news broadcast. Understand what is the will of your wife or husband or even understand what your own will is or what the purpose of your life is. You know what it means to understand your own will? It means follow your heart. You do you, I'll do me. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise that you shouldn't do that. That's what it means to follow your own will. But here he says twice, seek out, understand, strive after God's will, in every struggle, in every dilemma, every crossroad that you and I come to, every statement shouted from our culture and from the newsrooms or the billboards, we should ask first a very simple question. It's five words. God, what do you say? That's how we live once we come out of the gate, when we awake When we take off the dead man's clothes and we put on the living clothes, this is how we live. We ask questions like this. God, there's a lot of things being said. What do you say? Because I'm a beloved child of God and and I am made to imitate you. And so if I am made to imitate you, do you have an opinion on this? Because if you do, I want to walk in it. I want to know what it is. I want to walk in it knowing that you will be honored. My joy will be full. And I will live as I, am te- as, as, as I am intended to live. You are not created for yourself. You were bought with a price, the blood of Christ. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ, body and soul. You belong to him. What you do, what you feel, what you believe, your attitudes, your actions, your body is not your own. Don't be deceived by what people say. It's not your body. You don't get to choose what happens to it. It's not your time. You don't get to choose how you spend it. It's not your money. You don't get to hoard it. It's God's. Everything. When God speaks, the argument is over. We need to understand what the will of God is. God, what do you say? Do you have an opinion on this? The nuance in these two statements I really appreciate because it encourages us not only to look at what God explicitly says, but it also encourages us to dig deeper into issues that are not so clear. Are you, are you facing a, a struggle in your life, a dilemma, a conflict that the Bible doesn't talk about explicitly? There's nowhere you can go that God says, I'm glad you're struggling with that because I have an exact verse that gives you the answer. Most of our problems are not that way, unfortunately. But maybe fortunately, in God's wisdom, He means something good here. So He says, understand what the will of the Lord is. This is like, know what He says, read what He says, and do what He says. When God speaks, the argument's over. But then He says, Try to understand. Try to discern. Isn't this interesting? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what He would like based on what He has revealed to you in Scripture of His character, His nature. Try to discern. Is this compatible, what's going on in your heart, compatible with who God is and how He's revealed Himself in Scripture in His thoughts and His goals and His agendas and His purposes for you and for the world? So Paul is saying, there's a lot of things that you're going to go through and struggle with and be tempted with that the Bible does not explicitly talk about. That doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. Try to discern what's pleasing to God. I appreciate that nuance. And lastly give thanks always give thanks always you might hear this and you think of course of course you're right I know I need to be a more thankful person I know thank you let my first expression of gratitude be thank you for telling me I need to be more thankful because I am not a thankful person expressing my gratitude for the blessings I have remembering those who go out of their way to show generosity to me and not grumbling when things are bad this is only one part of what it means to be thankful Giving thanks, here, only one part of giving thanks means to be thankful for what the good that has come your way. To be thankful is expressed praise for the things that we have. But here Paul says we should be thankful even for the things we don't have, even for the things that have come our way that are not pleasing, even for the struggles, even for the hardships and the grief. Giving thanks always. This is, I, if I could if I could take out words in the Bible, this would be one of them. It's the word everything. In verse 20. I don't like that word. (laughs) Because there's a lot of things that happen that I'm not thankful for. Give thanks always end for everything. Every major religion will tell you that you should be grateful, that you should be a thankful person. Only Christianity can make you truly grateful for everything for the things that you don't like. For the things that don't come your way that you want, for the things that do come your way that are utterly painful. Only Christianity has an answer for that. How is it that we can give thanks to God in the midst of sickness and grief and depression and financial distress or marital dysfunction? Because on the sole basis of Christ giving himself for us, God is pleased with us. On that basis alone, he's pleased with us because Jesus stepped in our place and died for our sins and forgives us based on his record and character. We are accepted and adopted and made sons and daughters of God on that basis alone. And that is our answer for how we know even when the most unimaginable and horrible things happen, we can still be thankful because God is wise and good and in control and He loves us. You are His beloved child. Remember verse 1 and 2. God was pleased by the sacrifice of Christ. This is astounding. Jesus died on the cross and it went up as a fragrant offering to God. The most egregious injustice that the world has ever known was pleasing to God. Isn't that nuts? (laughs) That's the sweetness of the cross. That's the sweetness of what the cross does. Whatever injustice and pain and sorrow and conflict you are in, God means for it also to bring about his sweetness. And it's only because Jesus died for you. Sin makes us want to waste our words on shameful, filthy, and foolish topics when all the while there are so many things you and I can talk about to be thankful for. That's kind of what Paul says. He says, why would you guys be talking in nasty ways when your words are limited and there are so many good things to talk about? Do you realize what God has done for you? Do you realize the blessings that you have? It's as if Paul is saying, if you knew all that God had done for you and you began this very moment and we began this very moment as a church to just talk about all the blessings that has come our way, we would not run out of things to say before Jesus came. And he would find us still talking about all of the blessings we have. So why waste those words on talking in filthy speech and joking joking in crude ways. And since this is true, he he means to bring about his good through everything that has happened or will happen to us. The bitter wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for us, and the result is our sanctification. You have a God who will not give up on you. He will not forsake you. He will not go back on his promise to you. He will never rescind the riches of his grace that he lavishes on you. And although the realities of existence in this broken world are painfully true, and at times you may feel immersed in them, it is temporary. Your confliction, your affliction, your conflict has an expiration date. Our suffering will end and our joy never will. We can be thankful always for everything. Awake, wake up, and feel the warmth of Jesus' love for you, and walk as children of light. Let's pray.